Uh, welcome to a, another edition of the Evan Roberts Podcast. I'm pleased to welcome back a guy who I did one with a few months ago. We were doing, I think it was a half season in review for the Mets. And as we know, they suck then and <laughs> they suck now. And that is a guy you can watch on TV on SNY. And that is Sal Akata. Sal, I appreciate you coming back. How you been? Oh, great, man. I appreciate you asking me. Always fun to uh, talk some Mets, even as inept as they, uh, as they continue to be. Well, I, th- I thought of you the other night because it was the big David Wright night. I made you told my wife, I said, look, this is, we got to get to this game. We got to say goodbye to David. And I even mentioned this on something I recorded a few days ago, another podcast about the Wright tribute. I'll never forget you being very anti-David Wright early on. I think he was the golden boy. Yeah, yeah. Did you change on David? Like, how did you feel Saturday night with the whole big retirement thing? I did change. Now you're talking about we're talking about 2006 here, and the, the problem that I had, I remember you and Joe. Look, you and I had a conversation about him specifically, where you said you would not trade him for Miguel Cabrera. I mean, you remember that we discussed that. So I never, I never said that. Yeah, I was thinking of you. I was like, well, at least they, they wouldn't have been able to have that uh, that nice night with David Wright if they had traded him for Miguel Cabrera all those years ago. But and then Joe was talking about how he's better than Piazza and blah blah blah. And I never looked at him as that caliber player. I don't think he was as good as Beltron or as good as Piazza or as good as Strawberry. And at the time, you'll remember 2006 NLCS. I, I look back now and I think that's the biggest blemish of his career outside of obviously the injuries. That's the biggest blemish of his career because he had great numbers. He was on a Hall of Fame trajectory, and I do change the way I was thinking back then, but at the time, that was the reason why I was down on David Wright. And to me, the thing that I love most about him is the quality human being he is. Yeah, he put up great numbers and and all that, and yeah, the greatest, you know, arguably the greatest position Met player ever, but uh, the, the fact that he's a quality guy, wanted to be a Met, all those different things, that has changed my mind over the last, you know, 12 years or so. Yeah, and I admit that the Mets would have been better off the last decade if they had traded <laughs> David Wright for Miguel Cabrera. I do admit that. <laughs> those, those kinds of things, though, are very tough to predict because I remember during this previous offseason, we knew the Marlins were dumping guys, and one of the ideas floated around is, hey, would you trade Michael Conforto for Christian Yelich? And I think that you know my reaction probably fit a lot of Mets fans' reaction, which is, wait a second, he's our guy. We drafted him. We developed him. Meanwhile, Christian Yelich came a home run on RBI short of the triple freaking crown. But there's something for homegrown. And I think that with what happened on Saturday, it reaffirms that, that feeling that most of us have. They haven't had guys in their franchise spend their entire career with the same team. So while it sucked that they didn't trade David Wright for a future Hall of Famer or they didn't win a championship with David Wright, it, it means something. No other Met, not even Mike Piazza, is going to feel that emotion from fans because for us, as Met fans, you know this, Yankee fans don't get it. I understand. We don't have guys who spend their whole career with the same team. You know, and It's special for us. All kidding aside, I was thinking the same thing. I actually was thinking of you the other night with the, you know, thinking back to our arguments and thinking about his career and all that stuff. And I know baseball wise on paper, certainly. And, you know, who knows how it would have played out on the field. The baseball better move would have been, you know, adding Miguel Cabrera. But I would not have traded traded right you know not i'm not talking about literally i'm talking about you know the idea of having david Wright being a homegrown guy and all these years being a met that is a special moment so it didn't result in you know a world to a world series win but all the moments that he provided over the years being a homegrown guy i do think that that is special and i'm glad that you know they never uh decided to to move him or whatever you know it i don't know if you feel the same way but i end up now thinking of david more for 15 
than anything. I think of the run in 2015. I think of the home run in his game back against Philadelphia. I think of him pumping his fist in D.C. when the Mets swept the Nationals. I think of the hit in game one against Pedro Baez. And of course, I think of the home run. So oddly, most of my positive David Wright memories, and maybe it's recency bias. I don't know how I'm going to feel 10 years from now, but I think more of the run that he had in 2015. I'm so happy he was able to be a part of that run. Well, because I think you look back, and maybe I do the same, you look back at 06, 07, 08 as major disappointments. I mean, even 06, they should have won the World Series that year. 07, the the most epic collapse, and obviously we know about 08 as well. So those years to me, while they were his best, you know, numbers-wise, those years were dark years. And then after all the years of not trying and, you know, in their words, the evaluation mode and all that stuff, he was one who was here for the success before, and then he was here during those down periods. And then had a chance to taste it again and appreciated it even more. And I do love his home. Thinking about his home run in Philadelphia gives me goosebumps. The fact that he was so excited to play in a World Series. So yeah, I do get what you're saying, even though that weren't his best years. Clearly, those were his best moments with the Mets. All right, let's get to this season. Mm -hmm. Now, the way I want to do this is there are some awards to hand out, positive and negative from this 2018 season. But I want to start here. When spring training ended and opening day was upon us, how many wins did you think this team was going to have? Where did you think this season was going to go? I thought they would win the division. I mean, I now I predicted the Nats to be bad, and who knew that the Braves, certainly not me, the Braves were going to be this good. I thought the Mets would be the team to finally put it together this year, beat the always disappointing Nats, and win the division. I thought for sure they'd win at least – 87, something like probably 90. I mean, if you're picking a team to win the division, you're talking, you know, close to 90 games, uh, if not more. And then, I mean, geez, even after the way that they started, I thought for sure that was going to be the case. But I was very high on Mets coming in this year, and I also thought it was the best-built team of all the years, 15, 16, 17. This year, I thought they were best set up going into the year. Yeah, I I thought 85 wins. I thought they were going to be in the wild card race. I thought they were going to be relevant and fall a little bit short. But I remember the offseason being a disappointment to me. The guys I wanted them to get, and, I, and I, I guess I knew they never were because they were big ticket items. Three of the guys, so there were three guys I wanted, right? Two of them had bad years, which is kind of fitting considering every free agent the Mets brought in had a bad year, Frazier, Bruce, and Vargas. But I wanted Eric Hosmer, bad year. I wanted Wade Davis, bad year for the most part. But the third guy I wanted, Sal, I wanted Lorenzo freaking Kane. And that guy, I mean, let's be honest, Lorenzo Kane would have been perfect for this team. Yeah, and I can't disagree with you. I wanted those guys too. I mean, obviously I would have loved Wade Davis, a big arm in the back end of the bullpen. The one thing is those arms, and, and I think they should be cautious moving ahead, the bullpen arms are so fickle year to year. But they needed a center fielder desperately. They still do. They needed a catcher, so I would have thrown Lucroy into that mix. If you would have told me the Mets on Hosmer, Kane, and Lucroy, I would have been thrilled. And what happened was I started to get sucked into, okay, well, it's not the guy that I really wanted. But Frazier could be a good player. All right, I didn't love Bruce, but all right, he's a solid player. All right, you could live with this and live with that. All right, maybe they'll be okay because they did so much of it. They went, obviously, with quantity as opposed to quality, and it failed miserably. And I remember when Todd Frazier was on your show, okay? Oh, my goodness. You hear the numbers that he said he was going to put up? Oh, yeah. He thought he was going to hit. What did he tell you? What were the numbers he said he was going for? Because he didn't even come a mile from that. He must have said something like 280. I was like, what, Todd, can you go 250, 25, and, you know, 80 or 90 or something? He's like, how about this? How about 280, you know, 
25 and 100 or something like that. He, he wanted to you know, lower the power numbers but get the average up there. You know, the guy hit 219 a year before. What did he end up this year? The same thing? I mean, he's again, he was shooting for the stars, but we would have taken half of what he said, and he didn't even come close to it. Well, the, the problem with Todd Frazier was, forget the average. The average was 213, which, believe it or not, was exactly the same average he had a year ago split between the Yankees and the White Sox. The difference was he didn't play all the time. He missed a big chunk of the season. He only hit 18 home runs. So his OPS was under 700, which he's never had in his entire career. So Todd Frazier walks in here. I didn't want him, but if he would have at least given the production that he gave with the White Sox in 16 or the Reds in 15, that would have been 10 times better than the garbage he gave the Mets this year. And that was the common thread. The common thread was every single free agent acquisition. Todd Frazier, Jay Bruce, Jason Vargas, don't give me his last six starts, and Anthony Swarzak sucked. I mean, they couldn't, bro, they couldn't have been worse. And, and if we imagined our worst case scenario, they wouldn't have been this bad. I, I want to know Jay, part of Jason Vargas. He's been terrible. I mean, you remember him from the first time. I don't care how short a stint it was. The guy gets hit all the I can't even believe he won that many games with the Royals. Swarzak, whatever. Like I said, the bullpen arms, who knows? And right, we didn't want Frazier based on the numbers that he was putting up, and he didn't even attain those horrible numbers. So I didn't, I mean, I, you know, I didn't like it. I think Bruce could be a productive player. Unfortunately, he was hurt uh, again this year, but it's the same thing when you look, you get what you pay for. They did not want to go to the top shelf. Now, you could argue, like you said, with Hosmer, maybe they didn't have a good year, or maybe Luke Croy wasn't as good as I had hoped he would have been. But still, you get what you pay for, and they didn't want to go out there and get the top guys, and they got guys you know, who didn't perform. A lot of them. All of them. And, and you know what? Here's what I'll say, though, about Eric Hosmer. Eric Hosmer played 157 games, and that's the common thread. All of these guys got hurt. And then, yeah, when they played, they weren't productive, but See, Jay Bruce is going to be better next year, right? He's got to be. His career record says he's going to be better than this year. The problem is all of these guys couldn't stay healthy. So when I look back at this season, because obviously we're both wrong in varying degrees on how bad this team was, it was those specific guys that needed to be productive that weren't. And the other thing was the bullpen. I mean, the bullpen was a dumpster fire. I know Lugo and Gazelman were probably better than we could have imagined coming out of the bull, uh, coming out of the bullpen when they were moved there. Because remember, back in spring training, there was a thought that they'd be in the starting rotation. Think back this in spring training, Zach Wheeler didn't make the rotation. Yeah, and, isn't that crazy to think about? And I liked, yeah, it is crazy now looking back, being that he was, you know, their second best pitcher behind a Cy Young winner in Degrom or a future Cy Young winner. I liked Lugo and Gazelman in the bullpen, and I thought they overused every early on, and that's a whole other story with Callaway, the way that they use people, but the bullpen just fell apart. I, I could not imagine it being that bad. Remember, you were relying on both Lugo, Gazelman, Blevins, who was terrific last year, and obviously dreadful this year for the most part. Ramos, I thought he could be another guy. They bring in Swarzak. You had like five arms, and you figure out of those five, and maybe you hope to get something from Seawald, who showed signs last year. They ha- It wasn't like they didn't have the... Familia was there at the time. It wasn't like they didn't have the bullpen built properly. It worked for a little while, and then it just went into shambles, the complete opposite direction. And I think coming into the season, if I said to you, okay, the big bats in this lineup, Jay Bruce, Todd Frazier, Yoenis Cespedes, the established guys. Conforto is now becoming established, and we'll get to him in a second. But those three guys, Jay Bruce, Todd Frazier, Yoenis Cespedes, if I told you they were going to hit a combined uh, 36 home runs between the three of them, I mean, I think that in itself defines the season. Those three guys hit 
36 home runs between the three of them. Yeah, and I remember one of the prop bets that uh, I looked at before the year was Cespedes over 32 and a half home runs. So you would have, I would have clearly been wrong on all three of those together. I would have thought for sure. And forget even Frazier, although you thought maybe he'd at least be consistent in that department. I thought Bruce, who has performed here before, I thought he'd stay relatively healthy and have a decent year. And I thought Cespedes was going to bounce back and have an MVP type year. And obviously wrong on, you know, they missed on all three of those guys. One thing I'm glad to be wrong about, though, because here we have to admit when we're right, when we're wrong, we got to take responsibility. I wanted them to trade, and I, I still love Andrew McCutcheon. I do, and I wouldn't be opposed to the Mets going after him during the offseason. We see how valuable he is for the Yankees, but I was all for trading Brandon Nimmo for Andrew McCutcheon. And I admit that I am glad Sandy to make that trade because I think that's one of the positives from this season that we come out is that. Brandon Nimmo looks like a Major League Baseball player. Yeah, he's been – and look, he looks like a winning player, right? I don't love his defense, but you love his hustle. You love his at-bats. You love his attitude. Now, I would have traded him too. I wanted badly McCutcheon and Harrison. I thought that that would be the right move. I thought Nimmo's a useless fourth, fifth outfielder. I mean, I don't even know if the – well, I do know this. The Mets didn't know what they had in Brandon Nimmo, I think it's fair to say. But yeah, we would have been wrong for wanting to trade him for that. Now, does that mean he's going to be an everyday player next year? I mean, it's weird the way that it shapes up, and I guess we could get to that, but I like him. I like him in the lineup, but are we settling for that type of player as opposed to having, you know, better? I mean, think of what I, I always compare him to Hicks because Aaron Hicks across town, you could argue is, you know, a top three center fielder in all major league baseball, gold glove, switch hit power, all that stuff. And nobody talks about him, but Nimmo, who is, you know, a nice player, they, the Mets want to build a statue for him. So I, I, before I get all too excited, and again, I like him. I think he should be in the lineup. I, I, you need to build a better team around him. He's a nice little piece. He's not the guy or top three guy on a team. The, the appeal of Nimmo is the on base. I mean, that's really, the, the hustle and all the cute stuff. Oh, he runs really hard to first base when he draws a walk. But the bottom line is when you have a 400 on base percentage in Major League Baseball this day and age, they're going to build a statue to you everywhere. I mean, when you have an OPS of 886, which is higher than Aaron Hicks, that, that would means you, something. Who would you rather have, Hicks or Nimmo on your team next year? Well, the answer is Aaron Hicks, but I'll tell you why. I would take Aaron Hicks because of his defense. And I think you nailed it at the beginning about Brandon Nimmo. As far as offense is concerned, I'll tell you this. Brandon Nimmo had 17 home runs this year. Aaron Hicks had 27 home runs this year, if I'm not mistaken. Aaron Hicks is in a murderer's row lineup, and he plays at Yankee Stadium. So I don't know if I can look at 27 and 17 and say, hey, those numbers may look a little different if they switched places. But the reason why I would take Hicks is because of the defense. A, I think Brandon Nimmo is average at best. And B, Aaron Hicks is brilliant out there in center field. Well, so- I, guess, I guess that's my point. And you're right, the, the home run disparity. I, I don't need Nimmo to be a 30 home run guy, but is it too much to ask for a complete player? I mean, can one of these guys play well in all areas of the game? Uh, it, it's, it doesn't happen. So it just hasn't happened for this team. So while Nimmo has some great attributes, yeah, the on base, oh, he gets on base. All right, but but he's not a complete player. So And I don't mind him being a piece, like I said, but he's not the guy. No. What is he what is he missing in your opinion? Give me the things about Brandon Nemo that's missing. Uh, first of all, you need to see more. I mean, like I said, I like his offense. I like his offensive game. I think you need to see more of him, but defense is definitely a problem. Um and he's he's just light in the other other areas. Not like he's hitting three thirty and gonna hit twenty five home runs. All right, seventeen homers is nice. You think he plays a full year next year, you think he's gonna hit twenty five homers? 
You know why I think it's possible? And, and I'm not trying to build a statue for him. I talked to my radio, I talked to Beningo about mm-hmm. him and he loves Brandon Nemo. He probably loves him more than I do, but I love him more than you do for this reason. He's 25 years old. This was his first full year in the major leagues and his production was 260, incredibly high on base, 17 home runs, 47 RBIs. Now, do I think in another full season, he's going to get better? Why wouldn't I? I mean, most guys get better. Not not everybody. We've seen Conforto go up and down. But I think with experience, could he hit 25 home runs? Why not? It's fair. But I guess you you look at Conforto, and he's been a guy I've been talking about, should be a perennial all-star for this team and should be hitting 320 and 25 homers and driving 100 runs. And if they don't do that, they can't win. He, to me, was the biggest disappointment this year. But that type of player, that's not... Brandon Nimmo. So how are you then on this team without the luxury of a DH? Where are you putting Nimmo next year? Well, what I probably would do is I'd have Conforto and Nimmo as my corner outfielders and I'd get a big time center fielder. Now that's easier said than done because what big time center fielder is out there? AJ Pollock worries me because he has a tough time staying healthy. But I think if you bring in Look, I know Manny Machado is a pipe dream, mm-hmm. but if you sign the guy like Manny Machado and stuck him at shortstop and move Rosario to third or second, whatever you decided to do to make it work, get rid of Todd Frazier, play Machado at third base. I think, yeah, I think you can live with Brand- Brandon Nimmo's a major league baseball player. He proved that this year. Well, I guess that's my point, though. You just nailed it. You, If you build around him, then yes, I could live with him in one of the outfield spots every day. So in your scenario, you want to get a center fielder or you don't care if you get uh, Machado in here, then you move Nimmo to center. You can put Bruce in right. But right now, Bruce is locked into a position. You have Conforto locked into a position. If you're going to give one to Nimmo, that's fine. Where are you upgrading this team? And that is what becomes infuriating. So you could say, oh, look at the positive signs that Rosario was showing and look at Nimmo and you know Conforto, what he did in the second half of the year. And if Bruce stays healthy and then you back in the same exact scenario that you have been in the last several years. Well, yeah, I think what they're going to do is they're going to sell you on Frazier and Bruce are going to be better. That's that's absolutely what the Mets are going to sell you on. I look at it this way. I would shop Jay Bruce and I know Jay Bruce doesn't have a lot of value. So my approach would be I'd go to a team with a relief pitcher. Maybe, and I know this is such a random name because I thought about this. I've, I've thought about this, Sal. I've no, thought about finding. <laughs> I've thought about can I find a relief pitcher with a similar contract to Jay Bruce who stunk that you can match up with? And there's a couple: Brian Shaw with the Rockies, Juan Nicasio uh, with Seattle. And what you can do if you're the Mets is say, "Look, I know we're cutting our losses on Jay Bruce here, but I'm banking that this reliever will be able to bounce back because the only option for Jay Bruce next year." is first base. It's not in the outfield. It is not, to me, an option whatsoever. They need to get a real center fielder. That has to happen. And then first base, if you want to say it's a platoon between Jay Bruce and Peter Alonso, fine. If you want to get rid of Jay Bruce and give the kids, both Dom Smith and Peter Alonso, a shot, I'll live with that if you get a real center fielder, if you sign a catcher. And honestly, I'd live with anything if they sign Manny Machado. Right. If they sign Manny Machado. I'll live with whatever the hell they want. Well, I guess that's the point is that one one piece goes to another or one move leads to another. So it's hard to sit here and say what I would do because if you do sign Manny Machado, then you can live with McNeil at second. You can live with the platoon, as you said at first, or Nemo in right or center, however you want to work that. But assuming that they don't, and I think that that's a safe assumption, how are they making the team better? And I like your idea of trading Bruce. I just don't know, you know, if they could get somebody like that, Shaw for him, fine. You take a chance because he fits the team better. Um, I I want a real first baseman. I want a real catcher. I want a real center fielder, not just guys that you're going to stick in positions that they don't belong. I'm tired of watching that. 
No, I understand. I if you and Degrom isn't the answer. Okay, he may be the answer, but for the for this exercise, he's not the answer. Who who is the MVP of this Met team? And stick to offense. The offensive—that's what I'll call it. The offensive MVP of the 2018 Mets was who? Um, I'm not going to give it to Conforto because, as I said, I thought he was the most disappointing. I think you probably have to narrow it down to two guys: would be Nimmo or McNeil. Oddly enough. I mean, believe it or not, those to me, I mean, am I missing somebody? I I would probably say Nimmo because he did it longer, but McNeil changed things when he came up here. And it just wonders, you wonder why he wasn't up here sooner. I, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about this because the MVP of the New York Mets is Jacob DeGrom. And after Jacob DeGrom, believe it or not, the MVP of the Mets may be Seth Lugo and Robert Gazelman. So who would you go offensively? I, I I would probably say Brandon Nimmo. And the reason I would say, okay, a couple of criteria I usually have. The guy's got to play. And I know Brandon Nimmo had, I think, one DL stint. He played 140 games, which is almost a full season. It's Today's it's day virtually, day. Yeah. Conforto. Now, look, Michael Conforto played a full season, which is incredible considering we all thought he was going to miss the first month of the year. So the idea that Michael Conforto played 153 games, when you really think about it, it's kind of crazy. But I'm with you. Even though his final numbers, if you were just going on baseball reference and you said, all right, let me look at his stats – the answer is conform. I can't give it to him because he was so freaking abysmal for half the season. Yeah, he killed I can't him. Give it to I him. agree with you. He killed the team. I mean, he was disappointing. He's the most disappointing to me, even with the power numbers piling up at the end of the year. Well, here's the funny thing. The two most disappointing guys, forget the veterans, okay? The veterans are disappointing in their own way. But the two young disappointing guys was Michael Conforto and Ahmed Rosario. Yet those are the two guys that played the most games on this team. Rosario played every day, and I think we all saw progress from him. I'm not sure what he's going to be. I don't know what the end result is. He is only 22 years old. So I thought I actually thought about Rosario for a second because he was out there every day. But the truth is, Jeff McNeil didn't play enough, and we'll get to him in a bit. Brandon Nimmo was out there every day. He was pre- – I know he had his slumps at times, but for the most part was certainly more consistent than Conforto was. He got on base. He hit for a little bit of pop. He had energy to this team. I, I know it's kind of by default because there really isn't this great choice as MVP. But I, I think I would select Brandon Nimmo based on who else am I going yeah, with? Based on there are no other choices. Now, he did have a good year, especially for him. And I love a guy that took advantage of his opportunity right from spring training on through the season. Um, so, yeah, I mean, by default. But, yes, he had, a, he, he had a nice year, but not what you want from an offensive MVP. It wasn't that type of year. Well, what what numbers do you look at in this state? I still, I'm still I, an average guy. I mean, I, you know, I get the on base percentage, and I understand that people devalue. Look, we had Alderson on when I had him on my radio show. I, was, I asked him flat out, you know, why are you not looking at batting average? I mean, Todd Frazier at 219 a year ago. Why would you not be looking at that? So people could come up with all the new metrics and on base and all that stuff. I still believe in guys who put the ball in play, guys who get hits and hit for high average. That's what I want. So I do value somebody that could be a 300 hitter and hit over 20 home runs. That's that to me. I'm still a traditionalist you know, with that. I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a sellout. I got to admit, I, it's not that I don't look at batting average. It's that I'm base person. Think about this. When you're in Little League, didn't your coach say a walk is as good oh as Oh my goodness. I'm glad you brought that up. It is the dumbest saying in all of baseball. Why? It's not. Why? It is factually incorrect. Yes, it it's factually, factually incorrect. In certain spots, first of all, a walk is as good as a hit for guys who can't hit. That's number one. Number two, <laughs> it is just factually incorrect. It's not a hit does more damage than a walk. A single with nobody on base is as good as a walk. That is it. 
That's where slugging percentage comes from. See, if you take slugging where extra base hits matter more than singles, where home runs matter more than walks, that's where it comes in. That's why OPS to me is the best indicator. It's not the end-all be-all. I understand that. But taking on base percentage, because look, you are right. If there are first and second and two outs and a guy doubles up the alley, is that as good, if not better than a walk? Of course it is. There's no question well, about it. a single it. is still better in that scenario. As I said, a single with nobody on. Okay. A walk is as good as a hit if it's a single with nobody on. That's it. For a lead, for a leadoff hitter, a single and a walk is the same thing. Would you not agree? Yeah, yeah nobody on. Okay. Well, that's where on base matters. I'm not saying it's the end all be all. Look, I think Joey Votto becomes too obsessed with it. Joey Votto, if he was on our team, he would drive us nuts because he'd be up in an RBI situation looking to draw a walk. Man, you don't want I that. agree. I agree. But I think that OPS is still a very good indicator because if you've got a guy hitting for a low average, hits a lot of home runs, but draws a lot of walks. I think that guy can still be a pretty valuable player, even if he's hitting 225. Yeah, and well, that's why I guess on base plus slugging is the biggest, you know, indicator of what type of offensive player a guy is. But my thinking is this if a guy hits for a high average, that means he's putting the ball in play a lot. And I don't care what the exit velo is, what the luck is, if it's bloops or what, when you're aggressive like that and you're effective like that and you're hitting 300, you're, you're, you're producing. It's as simple as that. It's not, unless it's all singles and there are ways to dissect that as well. You're watching the guy, but generally it's not. If you hit 320 or whatever it may be and you know, you're driving to 20 homers, that's the goal. That's what I want Conforto to be. That's the best offensive player. I'm tired of this 260 nonsense, 240 or whatever, 230 with 40 home runs or 30 home runs. I don't like that. I want a complete, well-rounded player. No, I agree. And the one thing I will agree with you on is strikeouts. Strikeouts drive me nuts. And think about this. Brandon Nimmo struck out 140 times this year. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a lot of strikeouts. So uh, unfortunately, it's an epidemic in baseball. I mean, they just don't care about the strikeout. And we'll see who the new general manager is. Maybe the new general manager is going to have a very different philosophy on things. But I do want to get to McNeil because you brought him up before. Are you... Because I wasn't for a while. I I thought he should have been up here for a while because he was hitting on every level. And you even asked the question, why did it take so long? But are you fully buying that he's done enough to earn the opportunity to be an everyday player next year? Mm, Well, that's a different question than do I believe that he's going to be as productive next year? Did he earn enough to be an everyday player? Well, hold on, hold on, hold on a second, hold on a second. If you think he's going to do what he did next year, then the answer is, of course, he should be. In I, but I'm not. Right? I'm not so sure. I think that. But did he? Okay. He didn't do anything to hurt his chances. But I would also not be as sold as everybody else. Okay, well, he did this since he's come up, so he's going to do that again next year. It needs to be better than that, you know. Unless the Mets are really that bad at evaluating their own players, which there's a chance that that's the case, he should have been up here sooner. And maybe he's not as good as he's showing right now. And there are going to be adjustments made to him. And He's going to have to prove he can do it again next year. So if you're asking me, 2019, am I sold with Jeff McNeil as a starting second baseman? And I feel comfortable about that next year? No, I'm not. It depends on everything else around it. If you give me Machado, if you give me Real Muto or add a real center fielder, yeah, then I could live with it. But am I living with that as a great addition or great plus for this team next year? Um, I'm not as sold as that. Does he deserve a chance? I think he deserves a chance to at the very least compete based on what he did. But I am not sold that this is the type of player he's going to be moving forward. Yeah, I I was very skeptical for most of his torrid run that he was on because similar to what you're thinking, he's 26 years old. He's been in the minor leagues for a long time. Uh, He was definitely productive when he was in double A this year and he was productive when he was in triple A last year. But if you look at his numbers 
at other levels before this. I know he had a lot of injuries in his career. It was never like this. It was just never as productive as what we've seen. But I got to tell you, the defense, here's the thing, the defense, they said he's not that good defensively. And we're watching him make diving catches. We're making watching him making sliding plays. My evaluation, I know it's only 60-plus games, but it looks like they were really, really wrong about it. I don't understand how that happens. I don't understand how a team that is starved for offense has this kid who was raking. They don't give him a chance because they don't believe in him. And then he finally comes up here. They give him number 68. They still don't believe in him. And he goes out there and rakes. Better offensive player than anything that they've shown. And you're right about the defense. I don't understand how you can mis-evaluate or evaluate incorrectly a defensive player. I mean, that doesn't matter what level you're playing at. You can either play defense or you can't. And for whatever reason, remember they have the same stuff with Conforto. Oh, he's a negative defensive player. He's been a good defensive player. He's fine. And the fact and Rosario, they said was a great defensive player. Meanwhile, he was disappointing to me. That's not a great defensive player. He was raw. He needs to be better defensively. And obviously McNeil, they couldn't be more wrong about it. So that is actually alarming when you think about the the you know, incorrect evaluation of their own guys at times. You know, it's going to be a common theme that we say this, but if the Mets sign Manny Machado, we're all good with Jeff McNeil as yeah, the right. second baseman. Right, but in the likely event that that doesn't happen, then are you okay with McNeil and Nimmo and, you know, Bruce or, or Conforto? That's the same old story. I mean, who's going to be catching next year? Oh, Wilson Ramos, that's going to be the answer? I need, I need better than that. And that's why I always said I'd look to make a big trade and shake it up and try to get Real Muto from the Marlins, whether it's Nimmo, Rosario, you know, Lugo, something like well, that. Well, I'll give you something, because I've mentioned this on the air, and I think you got to get creative with it, but the Milwaukee Brewers are obviously a playoff team. They're very excited. But the one thing the Milwaukee Brewers are clearly missing, not just this year, but certainly next year, is an ace. They don't have one. I mean, Jolice Chassin, while he pitched very well in the tiebreaker game, is not an ace. I'm not suggesting DeGrom. I'm not even suggesting Syndergaard. But would you be open? And this is going to lead to the next part of the 2018 Mets rewind, basically. Would you be open to a three-way trade? Zach Wheeler ends up in Milwaukee, and all those prospects end up in Miami, and JT Realmuto ends up with the Mets. Boy, I love it. Yeah, I absolutely love it. I never thought of that one. I didn't hear you say that, but I do love that because I'd rather have him than any prospects. Um, and I think the, the Brewers made a mistake in undervaluing Wheeler at the deadline. That was the guy they should have went out and got. Now, I'm with you. I didn't believe in Wheeler, and I wanted the Mets to trade him desperately while he was at his peak, but he wasn't at his peak. He continued to get better. And now, I guarantee you, Milwaukee's kicking themselves for not making that deal uh, at the trade deadline. They've obviously had interest with him before, dating back to 2015. I would do it. Would they do it? Would the Marlins do it? Because now you're talking about one year of control as opposed to this season and playoff run and all of next season. Yeah, I mean, look, it's and it's always complicated when you have to get three teams involved. Do the prospects the Brewers have match up with the Marlins? I'm just under the assumption the Marlins will eventually trade him. I mean, they're, that's their game plan and their end game. And where, the, where I'll give them credit is they'll get more for Real Muto this offseason than last offseason because Real Muto had an even better season. Yeah, I, I would I would do whatever it takes, essentially, you know, within reason to, to go get him because I think he's a difference-making player. I mean, you're talking about a young all-star catcher in the prime of his career. It's exactly what they need. Oh, yeah. No, hey, look, he's right now – I mean, you're making a list of the best catchers in baseball because there's not a lot of good catchers in baseball. The I, I read this stat a few months ago that the catchers in Major League Baseball this year, all of them, hit a combined 233. <laughs> That's mind-numbing. <laughs> 
Can you believe that? Uh, no, that's brutal. I mean, yeah, you know there's just no catches around, but look, they, they need to upgrade there. And you have one that's available. He would never, a player like that would never be available if not for the, you know, the way that the Marlins run their organization currently. So if, if he's available at all, I would make sure that that would be my top priority. I was very skeptical until the end about Zach Wheeler. I didn't really buy that this was this career renaissance for him, but I think over his last five starts, even I started to buy into it. That doesn't mean I won't be open to trading him during the offseason because I think in this day and age, you need position players and you need bullpen help, and the Mets don't have a lot of both of those things. But do you buy Zach Wheeler? Do you you think he's this good? (sighs) A tough one because I've been so anti him for so long, and it's hard not to, you know, you know, you, you're watching watching him do this, so it's hard not to believe what your eyes have been seeing here. That being said, I still don't 100% trust him the way that I do Syndergaard, DeGrom, obviously, next year. And I do think you need to trade from an area of strength. The problem that I have is that he's only got one year under control. So if you're telling me I could get something of value back, then yes, I'm doing it. I'm not one of these, oh, no, no, you need to keep him intact and Syndergaard, DeGrom, and Wheeler. No, I don't care about that. I would give him up. I just don't know if it's worth giving him up at this point because of what you're getting back. If I could get back to what you said, I'm doing it. But it had to be something really good for me to, to give him up. And that was always the case anyway. That would have been the case at the deadline. I'm not just going to give him away, but I would certainly be open to moving on, even though I think he maybe has turned a corner here and will be better. He, I mean, I don't know if he's going to be what he was last year. I think he'll be better than the majority of his career has shown. Well, it's, it's crazy because his final numbers are really good. And you got to take into account that he started off the season terribly. So he closed the season as one of the best pitchers in baseball. I think he had the best ERA in the National League in the second half of the year. How about the fact, though, that he's going deep in the games? I mean, this is he's been a five-inning pitcher, throwing a million. He throws 100-plus pitches in five innings. That has been his M.O., even when healthy. So that, to me, is what was eye-opening, is that Zach Wheeler pitching in the seventh and eight innings going deep into these games and effective while doing it. That shows me that something changed in him and that I do believe that he'll be better moving forward. Yeah, and you mentioned the final year in his deal. If they gave him an extension right now, which I doubt that they would, are they going to lock up Wheeler, DeGrom, and Syndergaard for the next eight years? And is that the thing to build around? Because you look around baseball right now, that's certainly not the thing to build around. I mean, you look at all of these teams in Major League Baseball, you look at a playoff team like the Oakland Athletics, You even look at a team like the Milwaukee Brewers, they don't have a lot of starting pitching at all. I mean, the formulas in 2018 and probably beyond 2019, 2020 is about bullpen and good young position players. So that's that's what I hesitate around because I want DeGrom long term. I think Syndergaard is going to bust out next year if the guy can ever stay healthy, which was his biggest problem this year. He missed seven or eight starts, whatever it turned out to be. But I don't know if building around the three arms and paying them the money it's going to take I don't know if that's the smartest thing. Uh, I know, but you'd change your mind come postseason. I mean, that's why they got to the World Series in 2015. That is why they have a chance because if you put those guys, I mean, I, I would even say right now, this inept, brutal team, no defense, bad offense, horrible manager. If you put DeGrom, Syndergaard, Wheeler in a short series against any of these teams in the National League, I give them a chance. You don't think they could beat the Braves in a short series? You don't think they beat the, any of these teams? I would give them a chance because of those pitchers. So, I, I know what you're saying, but it takes more than just that. But I wouldn't be so quick to say, okay, well, you can't just build around the pitching because in the postseason, it's different. And, and, you know, we were mentioning earlier that think about the amount of games and home runs Cespedes, mm. Jay Bruce, and Todd Frazier gave this team. Now think about the opposite. 
Jacob DeGrom made 32 starts. Steven Matz made 30 starts. Zach Wheeler made 29 starts. And Syndergaard missed a few, but he still made 25 starts. If I would have told you at the beginning of the season, forget Matt Harvey, he sucked. Those four guys were going to make as many starts as they made. We would have probably been popping champagne. Uh, it, it, that may be. The fact that all of those guys, in particular Matt's, made that many starts, that may be the most shocking number to come from this year. And to have it be a wasted year. I mean, look, they weren't even a 500 team. If they, if you told me that before the year and you, you said that they'd finish 500, I would say that that's a mega disappointment. So the fact that they weren't even that close with all those guys taking that many starts, uh, it just shows you that it can't be all about that. But I do think in a short series, that's where you have a big advantage. Yeah. And, you know, you look at all their final numbers, they're, all of their ERAs were under four. Three of the four guys had ERAs under three, five. So, they were productive. I mean, I, we know about Jake. We haven't even gotten to him what a kind of season this guy had. So those four guys were productive, but it shows you that while, yes, you're right. Would they be dangerous in a short series? Absolutely. Is that how the Mets got to the World Series in 15 except take out Wheeler and add Matt Harvey? Absolutely. But in the regular season, you got to score runs and you got to get nine outs a game from the bullpen. And that's the thing that's so difficult to fix because – Spending money on relievers, you never know. Unless you're spending on Zach Britton and Craig Kimbrell, you don't know what the hell you're going to get. And even with that, so you need even with that, you still don't know. You would have said the same. You did say the same thing about Wade Davis coming in this year. Yeah. You, would you be shocked? No, would you be right. shocked? You go out there and give Craig Kimbrell a mega deal, a huge deal, and all of a sudden, you know, he gets hurt or he's not the same guy. I mean, Billy Wagner would be the one that comes to mind that actually worked in the Mets' favor years ago, but even he, toward the end of that, you know, got hurt. So I, I don't know. I, I'm always, especially with their history, afraid to give out the big deal for bullpen guys. Usually you find the better guys at value. All right, I, I sh- we got to mention Jacob Degrom. Uh, uh, the floor is yours. I mean, let's wax poetic about how freaking brilliant this guy the, was. The best was the best way I heard it summed up was Gary Cohen saying, calling it routine brilliance, and that to me is just it nailed it. I mean, the guy went out there every single fifth day and gave you the same effort every single time. His focus, I mean, each batter, he treated every game, every inning, every batter as if it were the postseason. And I know this is bizarre, but my favorite start of all was the one in Philly where did he walk the bases loaded? I think he walked the yeah, yes. he walked the bases loaded <laughs> and then gets out of the inning by throw he threw what 60 pitches or something like that and they took him out of the game after the first inning. But to me that was so symbolic of who he is as a pitcher where all right, he didn't have his best stuff, bases loaded, but now that's it. They're not getting anything more. And a run against the third, he's not letting them score. I mean, you talk about run prevention, that's the, the that's what a pitcher is supposed to do, prevent runs from scoring. He did that better than anybody else by far. So, I think his competitiveness, his ability to focus um obviously his stuff his development as a pitcher just look there's not enough you could say about him and i do give you credit because you were the first to always anoint him as the guy for me i get caught up in the harvey hype and then the Syndergaard hype and i always looked at Degrom as solid but not the guy and obviously that was wrong because he's by far better than anybody else that we've seen in a long time to me it became obvious with jake in Game five of 2015. That was the moment where I, it never made sense that from that moment on, he wasn't the anointed ace because my love for Jake started before that, but it was different. It was more a self defense. What happened was opening day 2015, going back to 2015, where there were a lot of expectations going into that year. 
there was a debate on who should start opening day. And there was a lot of Met fans screaming and yelling that it needed to be Matt Harvey, who had missed the entire previous year, obviously with Tommy John. Bartolo Colon ended up starting the game. And what bothered me is that, well, clearly, why isn't DeGrom being mentioned? The guy just won Rookie of the Year. You know, Jake just pitched. He was great that rookie season. Why is this all about Matt Harvey? And so it wasn't a negative Harvey thing. It was more a self-defensive. I don't get why this guy is being forgotten. In the postseason, what he did in game one, I mean, let's let's not forget that. How many strikeouts did he have in game one of that postseason game? And then the game five performance, which is similar to the Philly game in that it was just all guts. I mean, it was all guts and guile. That first game, he faces Kershaw, seven scoreless innings, 13 strikeouts. You would think that would be epic enough. Uh, the game five, the six innings, two runs, keeps him in the game, hands the ball to the bullpen. You would think that would be epic enough. So the thing I never understood, and now I think he's starting to get the love, but even now, even now he doesn't get the love that Syndergaard gets. Think about it. Was there really a lot of buzz at DeGrom starts this year the way there was for Matt no. Harvey a couple of no, years no ago? No Harvey Day, no Thor and all that stuff and the hammer. And by, by the way, that's one of the things that I love most about him is that he doesn't care about that stuff. But you're right. No, there was not that much attention or hype around it the way that those guys had. You, you are right, though. I agree with you about something you said earlier. And I think I mentioned this on the air that – that game in Philly is why Jake is great because and not only did he walk the bases loaded, like you said, and he threw a million pitches and he somehow got out of it. That was his first start back from the scare a week and a half earlier. Remember where we all feared he was going to go on the DL after he was swinging the bat. That was his first start back. So think about this. And this is another reason why DeGrom is the unanimous Cy Young Award winner. He had two starts that were thrown away because of injuries or weird circumstances. Four, I think, no-hit innings in the start where he got hurt, followed by one inning against the Phillies because they wanted to be careful with him. Those are two starts in which he probably could have gone seven scoreless innings, which would have lowered his ERA even more, and his innings numbers would have been higher. He was so utterly brilliant this year, and it's why when I look back at this season, it's going to be bad, it's going to be a disappointment, but I'm never going to forget, Jake, this mattered a lot more than what R.A. Dickey did in his Cy Young year, and it certainly mattered a lot more than the Dark Knight year of 2013, which ended early because of injury. This was, I wasn't around for 85, Doc. I was a year and a half years old. Same with you. You weren't around to see that. This was the most brilliant pitching year that we have the ever one seen. One thing I would say or even ask you is that do you think it, because of how bad they were all year, do you think it takes away, not from the individual performance, because nothing could take away from how great he was, but it takes away from the enjoyment and not only the fact that they didn't win, the fact that it became infuriating to watch this team when he was so brilliant continue to blow his games, whether it be the bullpen, the defense, the no offense, every time out, it became more infuriating than enjoyable for me. It was infuriating, and maybe I'm going to be wrong about this, and maybe you'll agree with me five years from now. When we look back at this season, that's going to be a part of the charm of Jacob DeGrom. A part of the charm is going to be, you remember how great he was? He only got 10 wins because the Mets played behind him as if they hated his guts. <laughs> and I really, I really think that. 85 Doc was about the emergence of this great team that eventually won the World Series right. a year later. 18 DeGrom is going to be about how this guy was able to overcome the sheer ineptitude of the dog crap. I know, but doesn't that come on as a fan? You don't want to root for dog crap. You don't want to watch that, you know, to use your words. So that 
it hurts. It's annoying because they should have been better, and they certainly, at the very least, could have won games that he pitched. I mean, it is remarkably hard to do what they did when he was on the mound every fifth day and lose the amount that they lost. So, yeah, you're right. It's a brilliant all-time season when you look back, you know, arguably the greatest season ever. You know, people talk about that, or certainly with the Mets, uh, for a pitcher. But just the fact that they were so bad bothers me. Maybe in five years it changes, you're right, and maybe that's some of the appeal of the season. But it was infuriating night in, night out to watch them blow his starts. Oh, oh no! Absolutely, I don't want you to think I was having a grand old time watching no, this stuff. This no, was but, very, but very I guess that's the point: is that every fifth day, instead of enjoying his starts, right, and seeing the team win—I don't know—some of those, maybe half of those—you didn't have that. It became okay. He's great again for seven or eight innings, and here they go. How are they going to lose it? And that during the run throughout the course of the season, instead of appreciating it and enjoying it. Maybe not appreciating it, enjoying it as much as we could have because they were so bad. That's that's the only thing that I would say about it negatively. No, I get it. And, and during the course of the season, it was frustrating to watch. I'm trying to look at how I'm going to view this down the road because there's a lot of Mets seasons that mesh together. You know, I always say not even 09. 09 was the first year they got bad after the collapses. But 2010 and 2013, those seasons all mixed together. Like there's a lot of just bad baseball mixed in. And I always try to think, okay, how am I going to remember 2018? And I think I'm going to remember it for two things. I'm going to remember the brilliance of Jacob DeGrom. And I think I'm going to remember how they teased the crap out of us, how they started 11-1. and They looked like this juggernaut. They looked like they were bouncing back from the malaise of 2017. And then they had one of the worst months that you can humanly have. And so I want to go back to this, all right, because at 11-1, and you're thinking – Hey, I'm going to be right. You, I'm yeah, talking as yeah. you because you thought this. I'm going to be right. The Mets are going to win the division. Is that what's going through your mind? 12 and 2. And yeah, they have the lead against the Nationals late in that game. Until that point, I'm thinking this is going to happen. They're better than the Nets. They're going to win the division this year. Yes, 100% thinking that and feeling good about it. Tweeting about it too. Jinxing myself <laughs> like an idiot. <laughs> and, I, you know, I we talked about this the last time. I agree with you that that oh. loss – to the Washington Nationals, the opener of that series after they had bounced back. Remember, they finally lost a game. They lost to the Brewers on a Saturday, and they bounced back. Wilmer Flores had a game-winning home run the very next day. And I always think that's important. When you have a big winning streak that ends, how do you bounce back? And it looked like they were going to bounce back again by beating the Nationals. And I got a fun trivia question for Mm -hmm. you. You ready for this? So Jacob DeGrom started that game. He ended up putting a couple of guys on base in the eighth inning. Mets, Mets bullpen and bloated. They lost to the Nationals. Who was the starting pitcher for the Washington Nationals mm. that night? Um, I don't recall. The answer, Yankee fans, is A.J. Cole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That was that was yeah. a horrible, horrible, horrible loss. And at the time, I remember sitting here in the SOI newsroom thinking to myself, I can't believe this just happened and trying to be like, okay, it's only one loss. But knowing that that's the type of loss, you know, when you have a team that's trying – the Nationals were the team to beat, clearly, and the Mets are the upstart team, 12-2. and two, That's the type of loss that could take all that momentum of the first two weeks of the season away quickly, and it did. And the manager himself said, we can't let it go into a tailspin. And that's exactly what happened. They went into a tailspin. You know, yes and no, okay, because I felt that they sort of bounced back in a weird way. I, I, I know they didn't have a good series against the Nationals after they lost that game, but they did salvage, I think, the final mm-hmm. game of that series. And 
They actually went on a road trip in which they went three and th- I think it was three and three against the Cardinals and the Padres. I remember they won a series against the Right, they the lost Padres. a series to the Cards right after. So that was two straight series loss and then beat the Padres, the hapless Padres. But then they came home and, and stunk again, didn't they? Well, they, they, there you go. This is when, in my opinion, the, the season Braves. Ended. So they beat the Padres. The Braves series. They came home. They took on the Atlanta Braves. They took on the Colorado Rockies, and they went home all for the homestand. Unacceptable. That was Why it. is this team so bad at home? Why? They, they have been so bad at home for so many years. Why? It, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I, don't, I don't get it at all. I mean, I thought at first they didn't build their team around the ballpark, but their ballpark is very – what is their ballpark now? It's not really even that much of a pitcher's ballpark. It's not a hitter's ballpark. It's it's a very average stadium now with the way they move those fences in. So what about this ballpark other than, I don't know, bad luck? It was built on an Indian burial ground? I don't know. I don't understand that because that was the beginning of the real tailspin to me. As bad as the national loss was, I thought they had kind of – they had leveled it. The, the boat was still sailing along okay. They were playing 500 ball. They were still 17-9. and nine. They were even still in first place. It was when they came home and got destroyed. And remember, they got destroyed in some of these games by the Braves and the Rockies. And that was it. And they just couldn't get their head out of from under the water because then they went to Cincinnati and they got beat up there. They lost some brutal games. I remember they lost a Wednesday afternoon game in a horrible fashion in extra innings. And they lost to the Reds, who at the time couldn't get out of their own way. And that, that was, was really it. to tell. When they, the when they lost May- that series to the Reds, that was really that, – that's when you knew it was over because they just – you had to beat – they had to win a series, and they couldn't beat the worst team at that time. Uh, well, I mean, maybe the Orioles were constantly the worst, but one of the worst teams in baseball couldn't take two out of three. You knew that it was just not the same. I mean, we're talking about going from 12-2 and two to one of the better teams in baseball – to you understand that it was going to level off at some point, but it needed to level off, and they just kept sinking, sinking, and sinking. And that to me was, it's looking back and reliving this with you, it's even more unbelievable the way that it unfolded because I really thought that they were a good team. I thought that at the very least be a 500 team. Well, well then I, I get to this because in 2014, the Mets had a 70, I think they won 79 games that year, whatever it was. But there was a positive feeling by the end of the year that they were building something. And I remember even saying to my now wife at a September game in the rain, this team's going to be good next year. And she had no idea why I would say that. I mean, she was like, "How could? why? Why do you think that? And I said, you can feel it. Can you feel it again? Because they were a good team for the second half of the year. I mean, the facts are the facts. Even with all the issues we discussed, Cespedes out, Bruce sucking, the bullpen, all of that, the Mets from July on, were a respectable baseball team. I'm having a tough time feeling like 2014, but does it at all for you feel that way because of how well they played for an extended period of time? No, if I'm being 100% honest, there's a part of me that wants to feel that way, and there's a part of me that does start to slowly get sucked in and say, okay, well, you know, look, they look like a different team. Conforto, maybe he could finally put it all together next year, and the pitching is going to be better next year because Syndergaard will be there the whole year. Maybe you get this from Wheeler. Uh, but it starts to go down that same rabbit hole again that you get sucked into believing that guys are going to stay healthy and guys are going to perform um, you know, for full seasons like they haven't done in a while. So I think they need significant changes. I'm going to stand by that. I don't like the way the team was constructed. I think they need more guys, um, certainly need more well-rounded players, but also just confident guys who don't let – 
you know, negative situations, let them go into these tailspin type things. I just don't think they have enough of those players. When something goes wrong, they have a weak jaw. When one thing goes wrong, they have no toughness. They can't get back up off the mat, and it's the constant losing and one thing after another. And that's how I felt about this team for a while. So until that changes, and I don't know if the manager is the right guy to lead this team. I have questions about him. Until that changes, I can't get sucked in again and believe that, that anything's going to be different next year. You have a lot of choices with this question, all right? But you can only pick one. Matt Harvey, Yoenis Cespedes, Jay Bruce, Ahmed Rosario if you want, Michael Conforto, whatever you want, Travis Darnell, remember him. The, the biggest disappointment in a player in 2018 was who? Um, I mean, there are a bunch, you're right. Um, I still probably would say, we touched on it earlier, I think I'd still go Conforto. Regardless of what he did, at the end and what the numbers say at the end, he's still got to be a better player. He's supposed to be the guy for this team. The guy. Consistent, reliable, all-star-like performer. You want to put on the shoulder surgery in the offseason? Maybe. I'm hoping that that's the case. But he was so bad early on when they needed him desperately. And I had the highest expectations. So when you talk about disappointment, am I disappointed with uh, Harvey or Vargas? Yeah, they stunk, but you had no expectations for them. I didn't think Rosario was going to be a stud right out of the gate. He's, he'd probably be up there, though. But Conforto's, I think Conforto's number one. Maybe Conforto, Syndergaard, Rosario would be my top three. See, I, I'm going different. I'm going with the health. I mean, to me, since the moment Yoenis hmm. Cespedes came here, when he plays, they win. When he plays, they just have a better chance to win. And the last two years, and even 2016, he missed a big chunk of time. But they were able to overcome it. They won the wild card, or they got to the wild card game, and of course lost to Madison Bumgarner. Last year, the guy missed half the season. This year, he played 38 games. And here's the sick part about Cespedes. When he plays, he performs. If you look at his numbers in just the, a few amount of games he played, if you times that out over 150 games, you're talking about a 35-100 guy. And so I get your point about all those other guys and what we hoped from them. At least they were there. At least they performed. Noah only missed seven starts, which was a little frustrating. To me, this team has always been about Cespedes, and they've got to get away from that because they can't rely on the guy. Yeah, they but how ever can you play. call it disappointing? He he didn't play. I mean, it's not like he it's not like exactly. he played and was disappointing. I think you have to. It's a different category. I'll give you an example with Syndergaard. Even though he missed the seven starts, that's not the most disappointing thing to me. The most disappointing thing was that he was getting tattooed early on in the year. The Braves were hitting him all over the ballpark. He couldn't get them out. Wasn't going deep into games. Wasn't being effective at all. That's what's disappointing for a guy who you had oh, expectations no. to be an ace type guy. But attendance matters. If a guy's not there, a guy's not there. And that's what I want. You know, one of the reasons why I valued Robinson Cano as much as I did until the whole steroid stuff is the guy plays 150 games a year. That matters. I want guys yeah, if you that play him well. You have to play him well though. I mean, you can't just be out there. Well, sure. I mean, but most guys who actually play 150 games a year are usually somewhat yeah, productive. Fair. Usually if they're not productive, they're not in the major leagues. Cespedes to me, just at the beginning of the season, I, I I said the guy needs to stay healthy and it couldn't have gone worse. The guy only played 38 games. And you can say that about a lot of guys. Jay Bruce didn't play enough. Todd Frazier missed a bunch of time. I know what you're saying. You're talking about the guys that were there. I expected more from the funny thing about Syndergaard is that Noah Syndergaard's final numbers are pretty damn yeah. good. 
I know, but you know what I'm talking about. Early on, when the Braves in that series against the Braves, I mean, we talked about where the season got away from him. Every he looked frustrated. He was disappointed himself because he's supposed to be, you know, again a top guy, not a five inning pitcher or six inning pitcher getting eight hits or getting run around the ball, you know, run around the base pads on him. He's got to be better. So when he was out there earlier in the year, he wasn't his dominant self. And I think that's going to change next year. I'm with you. I, I like the finish to his year. I think he's got a lot to prove next year. And I believe he will prove it. Yeah. I, I like the finish of his season too. And I, I said this off air, I think to Joe today, I said, I think Noah Syndergaard is going to win the Cy Young next year. I really do. And the only thing that's going to stand in his way is Jacob DeGrom. That's the guy that's going to stand well, in his let's way. Just hope, let's just hope <laughs> that they could remain healthy. And if they do, I mean, you would think that they should have a chance even with just those two. Well, before, Oh, I know. Absolutely. Now, before we go, please don't pick the Mets to win the National League East next year. Right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Believe me, that was a that was a rough one. Uh, again, right idea, wrong team. Um, it was more anti-Nats than anything else and not being aware of how good the Braves would be this year, but also getting sucked in, I guess, to the hopes to the hopes of the Mets and uh, and thinking that they could turn it around. I was wrong. Hey, look, you were right about the Nationals. I'll give you that. They were a disaster. I'll end, you, uh, I'll end on this note, okay? Because I noticed Bryce Harper as he was being interviewed after game 162 getting very emotional. He sounded like a guy that was leaving Washington. If I told you the Mets are going to sign Bryce Harper, your reaction Where are they would playing? be what? Center field. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I wouldn't be turned. I would, I would get excited. I see. I like his attitude. So I think he's a better player or as good a player as Machado. No, I would trust Machado more. And Harper's been inconsistent, but I like his attitude. I think he's a winning ball player. As odd as that sounds, with that Nats team, I guess the one concern. I mean, you tell me, what do you think happened with that team? That Nats team constantly underachieving. So is it is it him? Is, I mean, okay, yes. I think he's a part of it. I really do. Now, with that said, if the Mets all of a sudden spent a hundred and eighty million, well, more than that, two hundred eighty million dollars, gave me Bryce Harper, I would be in such shock that I'd probably be excited. But the Nationals have underachieved for years. You talk about having a glass jaw. I mean, my God, they I know. The but is it him, or I feel like it's everything around him? Look, man, he hit a home run. Was it last year's postseason against the Dodgers that they were down and out in the game? Uh, I think it was last year's postseason. Um, but anyway, a big, big postseason homer that gave you that Piazza-like moment, and I was just sold on him then. I mean, I, I know he's a great player. I know he's been inconsistent at times. I know he could rub people the wrong way. I believe the guy's a winning player, and if you put the right supporting cast around him, he could do damage. So I, I wouldn't be my first. He wouldn't be my first choice. I wouldn't turn him away. I'd be excited about that. Well, here's the good news or bad news: Manny Machado and Bryce Harper will not be okay. Not even close. Uh, with that said, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for joining me. It's been depressing. I, it has been kind of depressing going back on this 2018 season, I, I will say. Other than when we talked about the Grom, the whole thing is actually How about makes the fact that cry. they've had losing seasons in eight of the last 10 years? I mean, that's, yeah. it's, it's brutal. It's, uh, I mean, this is our lives we're talking about. We're getting older here. I'm not getting any younger. And the fact that the team can't win, very disappointing. But, yeah, this, this was a bad one because I had very high expectations. This hurt. Yeah, no kidding. Sal, I appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. It's been another edition of the Evan Roberts Podcast.